Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, our hearts today may be torn between rejoicing and grieving. We know that you are good today. Lord, we ask you, as this song put it, that you would melt the clouds of sin and sadness away today. You would drive the dark of our doubts away. And as we come to your word, that you would teach us, that your spirit would guide us, convict us, and encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. We live in a day and age that is arguably seeing unprecedented stress and sadness in our world. Study after study has shown dramatic increases in mental distress, depression, and suicide rates. And the possible causes of such sadness are many and varied. Family and relationship breakdowns are everywhere. Divorce and abuse are rampant. We're more focused these days on goals such as money and fame and image, which experts have convincingly shown that is correlated with anxiety and depression when we pursue those things. Combined with that, one study concluded that today millennials spend more time studying compared to previous generations, have more competition in their career, and find it more difficult to achieve job satisfaction. They also marry later in life, spending a larger portion of their lives making it on their own. Technology promised to solve a lot of issues and make us more connected than ever, when what it's actually done is make us less relational and lonelier than ever. It's putting up a, an Instagrammable front of many perfect lives to compare our own to. And not to mention the breakneck speed that it makes us try to live at. And of course, we have issues that aren't unique to our age as well, that are the same things that have haunted people forever. We all personally sin. We feel guilt and shame, inevitably face death. And corporately, we face issues like poverty, political corruption, terrorism, or war. On top of all that, you got pastors bringing this all up and reminding you about it all. <laughs> but in a day of sadness and sorrow and depression, maybe what we need is a command to rejoice. A command to rejoice. In the midst of a world like this, what better way for God's people to show that we are different than to, to head off the epidemic of sadness with a relentless outpouring of joy, regardless of our circumstances in life. Pastor Kenny spoke last week about how God has set us apart to be distinct from the world around us. You may think, though, but we still live in the world, so it's easy to get caught up in the negativity. How can we actually rejoice in the midst of the sorrow here and now? I believe that the answer lies in the unbelievable grace of God which he has shown to us. 
the grace of God. Has God been gracious to you? What do you actually deserve from God? Anything? And yet, in spite of you, has he not poured out on you blessing after blessing? When we fix our focus on his boundless grace, I think it can change everything about us. Certain passages that we've studied in Deuteronomy have been very heavy and and hard-hitting. Today is not one of them. It's a very upbeat passage, positive, warm, compassionate. And really, it's all about the privilege of God's people to respond to God's grace. That's what it's about. If you haven't already, let's open together to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy 15. Now, I've gotten really into the meat of the law, the nitty-gritty of it, and I believe that Moses has loosely arranged these many specific laws in Deuteronomy in a particular way around the order and structure of the Ten Commandments. So he began with the worship of God, and then he moved to address the temptation of idolatry. And, but then we think, well, what was the deal with last week? <laughs> All the food laws and tithes and stuff like that. That doesn't seem to line up much with the third command of not taking God's name in vain. Well, remember this. The Israelites were a people chosen by Yahweh, set aside to be set apart for him. They were essentially, as they entered the promised land, bearing his name, Yahweh's name, into the land as his representatives. God's name was holy, and they were God's people, so they were to be holy as well. Follow? Today brings us to a long section that is undergirded by the fourth commandment, which is observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Moses isn't going to talk much about the Sabbath itself, but it's no coincidence that he now talks about Sabbath years and celebrating festivals, which were meant for resting from work and rejoicing in God. He starts with the releasing of debts on Sabbath years. Right there at the beginning of chapter 15, follow along with me. It says this, At the end of every seven years you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever is of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. Essentially, people were free to borrow or lend from one another in the promised land. But there was a limit on how long a loan could last, up to seven years. And then it says that the Lord's release would be proclaimed throughout the land, and creditors were required to cancel or forgive all debts owed to them, absorbing the the loss. Grace really is the heartbeat of this command, though. Debtors, those who owed something, did not have a right to debt cancellation. No, they had a, a genuine obligation to pay their debts right, as much as humanly possible. This was instead a gracious measure that was intended to prevent poverty. Look at verse 4. It says, but there will be no poor among you. 
there will be no poor among you. Now that is not actually a guarantee that there would be no poor people in Israel. This was an, actually an ideal situation that they were to strive for. We're going to see more of that. But how could this be? How could this ever be? That there, why shouldn't there have been any poverty in Israel? Ideally, there'd be no poor because God was going to bless them so they could bless others. That's why. Look at verse 4 again. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. So if they held up their end of the covenant, there'd be, they'd be prospered and protected. But did you notice? God's grace was guaranteed, even if their obedience wasn't. It said, for the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you. In these and the verses that follow, we can see a first major response to the grace of God, and that's this. In response to God's grace, we should be gracious to others. Very simple. God has been gracious to us, so we should be generously gracious to other people in need. That's why he canceled debts, and it continues here in verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you, should open, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Notice the stark contrast there between being hard-hearted and tight-fisted and being open-handed and freely lending or giving as needed. Ask yourself, what is my gut reaction when I hear of someone else in need? Do I judge them for being in need? Do I worry that I might be asked to help? Do I look the other way and pretend I didn't notice or I didn't hear? These are ways that I think we can harden our hearts against them? And do I give as a need arises? Or do I pass off the need to other, maybe more well-off people? Or maybe do I grudgingly give a little bit of pittance just to say that I contributed, but my heart's not in it? These are ways that I think we can actually shut off our hands against them. As much as we are able, able this should describe Christians too as God's people in verse 8. But you shall open your hand to him, and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And why? Because God has been generously gracious to us too. That's why it should describe us. God's been gracious to us. Notice the repetition of you or your in these verses. I'll read it again. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Chris Wright says that this emphasis really addresses and attacks alienation 
which is one of poverty's worst effects. He says this, poor and needy people belong. They are not just social statistics. They are part of your community and are not to be marginalized, excluded, and victimized as an underclass. But also, think of the blessings that these verses imply. They, this was all theirs. They had brothers and sisters, spiritual siblings in the Lord. So do we. They, they would have towns and land which would be given them. And we have so much greater blessings than those. They had hearts. They had hands. They had an ability to love. So do we. All of which really should just naturally open our hearts to those around us. The Israelites had to carefully watch their hearts, their attitudes, even their thoughts. Look at how it continues in verse 9. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release, is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. So God's people weren't even entertaining the thought that they shouldn't give. <laughs> even if that meant a greater risk of loss. Just picture the scenario described here. Imagine if a friend came up to you and said, hey, I've had a a really rough go of things lately. I can't pay my bills, can barely afford groceries, can really use some help. So you think, well, it's like six and a half years until all debts are going to be canceled, so they have lots of time to pay me back. I can recoup this loan. So you tell them, no problem. What do you need? I'll e-transfer it to you. But imagine if the same thing happened and the time of release was only six months away or six weeks away. It'd be easy to think, oh, there's no way they're going to be able to pay me back much. So it'd be tempting to go, sorry, man, I wish I could, but I can't. And God outright classifies that as sin, right? As sinful thoughts. Sinful motives, sinful actions. Instead, God commands generosity. He says, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. And why? God's grace. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you. He's going to give to you. When was the last time you said, I can give now, because God will take care of me, full stop. I can give now, because God will take care of me. Hear this command and promise for Christians. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance 
so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So God is able to provide us with every blessing in abundance so that we can abound in generosity. Moses says in, in summary in verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. So verse 4 gave us the ideal, the, the goal. This is the reality, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Jesus himself referenced this verse saying, for you'll always have the poor with you. Whatever you want, you can give to them. You can do good for them. Still true in our day. There will always be a regular rhythm of need amongst believers for various reasons. Just because you maybe have given a lot in the past doesn't mean it's not going to happen again. Right? People still need to eat. Jobs are still lost. Families are still broken or abandoned. Refugees still need resettled. Children still need sponsored, still need adopted. People don't necessarily deserve our help. And that's why it's grace. <laughs> they don't deserve it, but it's grace. The rhythm of grace should be the heartbeat of a people saved by grace. Therefore, open wide your hands, open wide your hearts, open wide your homes, right? Then your wallets, your, your purses, your credit cards, your pantries, your dining rooms, your beds. These are all graces from God to you, right? So as you have been given grace in response to grace, give. Be ready for whenever you hear of a need. Come up regularly. Take the risk and trust God. Take the risk and trust God. If the first 11 verses focused on releasing debts, the next several talk about releasing people. Verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And it's talking about slavery, but before I go any further, let me say this is not endorsing slavery. Okay? George Athos explains, While slavery is rightly abhorrent to us today, it was a common reality in the ancient world. Moses does not outlaw the system in Israel, but he does put certain checks and balances in place to regulate it and limit it. This was a pretty progressive thought in this day. For example... This passage limits slavery to a maximum term of six years. Also, masters were to view their slaves as brothers or sisters, not property, which should have fostered a much more fair and humane treatment. Most slaves in Israel were actually bond slaves or bond servants, people who sold themselves into slavery in order to escape debt or destitution. Say I owed you a bunch of money, but I couldn't afford to repay you. So I, I could offer my services or manual labor for a time as a slave until I paid you back. That's kind of what was going on. 
And if you still recoil against the idea, you're bothered by it, check out how revolutionarily they were to treat slaves. Okay? Not only were they to liberate their slaves at regular intervals, look at verse 13. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. Now, they weren't just supposed to set them free into the unknown. They were supposed to set them up. Right? Giving them parting gifts, liberally, a generous send-off package. Therefore, a, a season of slavery was really to be used to get the slave back on their feet. To bless them as God had blessed them, so they were to bless their slaves. And God had given them abundant grace when they were slaves themselves. That's what he says in verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. What a wonderful foreshadowing of the good news we have in Christ there. Every one of us was or is a slave of sin. Enslaved to our own passions and pleasures. Chained in, in guilt, beaten by shame, destined for death. But because Jesus came to earth and lived the life that we should have and died as we ought to and conquered over death, we can be saved by his grace now. And that salvation not only includes the liberation from sin and guilt and shame, but it also includes the lavishing of eternal blessings on our heads. Titus 3 puts it, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If today you still feel like a slave to your sin, to your passions, you're still stuck there, this goodness and kindness and mercy and washing and renewal and grace and eternal life is available now. And even right now, because of what Jesus did, if you leave our sin, we believe in him, you can be redeemed and freed today. Your life changed forever. Can you see even in Deuteronomy here how God's redemption was to change the way they lived? It says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. You, you can't modify your behavior enough to please God or redeem yourself. But once God steps in, and redeems you, that should then lead to modifying your behavior. It's getting the order right. And one of the biggest evidences of grace in our lives 
is how we treat others around us, especially those who are less fortunate or of lesser status or in greater need than ourselves. There will always be people who hurt us. When we give grace to them, forgiveness, parents, your kids will require constant grace. Will you give it? There will always be people in need of grace around us. Next couple of verses address an exceptional case when a slave actually opted out of freedom. It says in verse 16, But if your slave says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, here's the humane treatment, good treatment, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and, you shall, and he shall be your slave forever, and to your female slave you shall do the same. Sometimes in that era, there's these valuable links and relationships that were formed during these times, and so a slave could voluntarily choose to remain with a household. And if he chose to do that, then his ear would be pierced as a sign of that. Chris Wright says, though, it's, it's worth noting that the initiative comes from the slave's side and not because you like him and it's good for you to keep him. <laughs> Has to go that way. But if the slave didn't cho indeed choose freedom, the master wasn't to begrudge them. Verse 18, it shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you. For at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. It shall not seem hard to you. Sometimes we may see generosity as a burden or begrudge calls to give stuff away. But, if we properly understand the grace of God, and we properly trust the goodness of God, then generous, gracious generosity really should become more and more of a joy to us. Right? We're the redeemed people of God. And he has rescued us. He's lavished his grace on us. And Christ was glad to give up his very life to do so and the joy that was set before him. We've got to learn to follow his example. We've got to learn to give with a lot less sighs and a lot more smiles. Oh, and by the way, it's not just other people we should give to. We should also give back to God, which is where Moses' train of thought travels next. In verse 19, says, all the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock, you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood, you shall pour it out on the ground like water. Here's the point I think we're going to see in these verses. In response to God's grace, we should give God whatever he asks of us. God has been 
gracious to us, so we should give God whatever he asks. First, Moses talks about the need for sacrifices. But not just any sacrifices, mind you. The first and the best. Whatever flocks they were blessed with. See, giving God their best was a matter of loving him, after all. A couple weeks ago, I bought my wife a big bouquet of flowers to express my love for her. But imagine if, as I stood in line to buy those flowers, I saw maybe a, a little girl crying. So I pull a flower from the bouquet and give it to her to cheer her up. Then I get up to the cash, and I see that the cashier is having a rough day, so I give her a flower too. And as I leave, I, I hand a rose to an old lady who looks lonely. Then I keep giving flowers away on my way home. <laughs> I get, when I, by the time I get to our door, all I've got left is one flower. Would my wife feel loved? Maybe. <laughs> She'd feel one flower's worth of love. <laughs> now, it's not a perfect analogy by any means, but this is how I, I think we often treat God. We give him the last, the least, and the leftovers. can't be got, bothered to give any more than that. Here the Israelites are commanded to, to give the finest of their flocks, the cream of their crops. What's your best? Now, 1 Peter 1 tells us that we were ransomed and redeemed by the precious blood of Christ who became like a lamb without blemish or spot. So he was our, our perfect sacrificial offering. Therefore, we no longer have a need to sacrifice animals to God. But he still asks for our first and our best. Most importantly, he asks for our hearts, our lives, our bodies. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So, part of being a living sacrifice for God is to be transformed in our lifestyle, to grow more like him. He also clearly asks us for our worship. Right? Like Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Continually, frequently, rhythmically. In the very next verse in Hebrews, we're asked to love those around us as a sacrifice. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You know, things that God asks of us as his people. How we've tried to sum that idea up as a church of what God wants from us as his people is that we are called to worship God, to grow together, and to serve others. Right? To offer the sacrifice of praise. To offer the sacrifice of ourselves as we grow. And to offer the sacrifice of doing good to those around us. My question for you today is simply this. Are you giving those things to God? Are they 
priorities for you in your schedule? Or are you giving him your leftovers? I ask specifically about your time for a reason. And that's the whole focus of chapter 16. And we're going to read most of the chapter, but first, if you would just jump ahead to verse 16 in the next chapter, it says this, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Again, grace of God is on full display, right? They were to give according to the blessing of the Lord. But regardless of how much one gave, that one was to give was a given, right? They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Chapter 16 talks about these three distinct feasts or, or national festivals for the Israelite people, which would really be annual reminders of what God had done for them. Do you sense what's holding all these passages together? God had been so gracious to them, so good to them, and therefore they were to be gracious to others, and they were to give back to God. And now we see they were to, to celebrate God's grace with regularity. These were all rhythms. They were to be rhythms in their lives, rhythms to both remember and to express grace. Every seven years, every time a, a firstborn was born, every year at appointed times, Here's how I put the, the main point I think we can see in chapter 16, which will translate to us. In response to God's grace, we should rest and rejoice with intentional rhythms. Okay, and God has been gracious to us, so we should rest and rejoice with intentional rhythms. Verse 1 of chapter 16 says to observe or celebrate the Passover. It says, observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Most of you probably know what was involved in that original event of the Passover when God dealt this death blow to Egypt but spared his people so he could rescue them. After that, the Lord instructed them to celebrate, the, to make the Passover a holiday every year to eat the same food and to carry on the same customs. And some of those are described here. Look at verse 2. It says, And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. 
For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. So, this is what they did. Every March or April, depending on how those lunar months fell, they would celebrate Passover. And each part of their celebration was meant to remind them of their salvation, how they'd been saved. This was the clear purpose of the Passover, as it says in verse 3, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So they would eat bread without yeast because they hadn't had time to wait for bread to rise in Egypt before they had to flee. They'd celebrate in the evening at sunset as that was the time that they left Egypt. And they would make the sacrifice of a lamb to mark how God's wrath had passed over them. This says something for celebrating religious holidays. For us, the, the parallels of celebrating our salvation would be to, to set times aside to remember the coming and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? So things like Christmas, and Good Friday, and Easter, and other holidays like that. Now, we're not required to keep any of those festivals for, as Christians. It's an area of freedom. The only specific celebration that is prescribed is the Lord's Supper that we're to do again and again. But we would do well to recognize that it is a, a good thing to celebrate what God has done. Right? If that's the goal, and as in as much as celebrating certain holidays helps us do that, great. Anything that keeps God's work on our behalf most alive in our minds, that's good. Note here that the entire Passover week was to be a holiday. But the, the final day would be more than that. It would be a Sabbath in order to, to worship the Lord as a community. It said in verse 8, For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. The, the Sabbath and rest really underlies this entire passage, even though it's not commanded here. It's commanded back in chapter 5. But these feasts were to be celebrated on top of and in conjunction with the Sabbath, which was observed rhythmically every single week. God clearly wanted rest and rejoicing to be central to Israel's lifestyle. They were to happen over and over, and over, and over, and over again. And in our day and age, have we ever neglected Sabbath and rest to our peril? See, everyone asks the question, do Christians need to celebrate the Sabbath? But that's the wrong question to ask. The answer is no. You don't need to. If you don't believe me, read Colossians 2. The right question to ask is, why in the world would we not want to keep a Sabbath? We, we tend to, to view it as a restrictive law that we might have to keep. 
as if it would be a, a heavy burden to not work incessantly. Instead of the grace of God to us that it really is. The Sabbath was a gift. Right? Jesus said that. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God could have required endless toil from us. But he doesn't. Instead, he gives us rest. To remind us that we're not God. Tell us that life goes on without us. To remind us of everything that is truly important and valuable in life. And that is invaluable. You know, you don't, you don't need to Sabbath, but we all need the Sabbath. It's the way that God designed life to work. It's a, in a pattern of, of work and rest and work and rest. It's a dance. So many of us live life at an unsustainable pace with few to no breaks to rest and to worship. So what might we do to, to create healthier rhythms in our lifestyles? Some of you might imagine that this is impossible, but it's not. If it is impossible, you may need to get a different job. And I am not joking. You need to have a conversation with your boss. You may need to be okay with lower grades, a smaller house, smaller paycheck, less social outings, whatever the case may be. But don't make changes just in order to make a new law for yourself. Do it to love Jesus more. And Scotty Smith, he puts it well, he says, to Sabbath well is to repent of trying to be our own savior and to stop pretending we have limitless resources, but more so, it's adoring Jesus. That's the point. We got to get back to that. To set a healthy example, our church insists that we pastors take a weekly Sabbath. And I am deeply thankful for that. It's not a burden, it's a blessing. Not taking anything away from your jobs, but ministry can be a heavy task. A hard task. Just to, to put something on your radar, our elders here at the church want to make sure that we last the long run. And so they are graciously planning out what some longer seasons of rest may look like for us. For myself or for Pastor Kenny, times for spiritual renewal and refreshing, replenishing, sabbaticals. Now I know that not everyone is able to take sabbaticals like that. That's okay. But some of you could. Perhaps while between jobs or on a leave of some kind, or even on holidays. Listen, if you can, set a week or two aside some year out of your vacation time just to, to free focus on the Lord. 
it could do wonders in your life to recenter yourself on what truly matters. You willing to sacrifice that? We need this. We need to get back to this pattern, this rhythm of rest and rejoicing. The rest of this passage focuses on two more feasts. The Feast of Weeks and Feast of Booths, which would happen in late spring and at harvest time, respectively. But as we read through these verses quickly, take note of how they're told repeatedly to rejoice. Okay, these were the occasions of great joy and celebration. Verse 9 says, You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. So again, they're to give back as the Lord gives to them. Verse 11, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. So this would be a community-wide affair. Everyone could, gets to rejoice. Okay? Children included, men and women, rich or poor, local or foreign. And Why? You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You've been redeemed. Rejoice. Finally, verse 13, you shall keep the feast of booths seven days. When you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful." Another translation puts it there, your joy will be complete. That sound familiar? It's believed Jesus alluded to directly to this verse when he said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Altogether joyful. Anyone who thinks the, the Old Testament law is full of a harsh, boring, killjoy God has to completely ignore the constant undercurrent of God blessing his people in order that they could rejoice in the Lord and enjoy life under his grace. Verse 14 says, to rejoice in your feast meaning that, that God wanted them to rejoice before him in the ordinary things of life, such as food, drink, or the fellowship of a community. And so should we. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. But what if life doesn't seem to be worth rejoicing in? What if life is hard, painful, or sad? What then? 
Well, we can still rejoice in what God has done for us in the past. And we can still anticipate Him coming through for us in the future. And we can still obey now. Chris Wright says that the Israelites were commanded to rejoice just as they were commanded to love, showing that such love was more than a spontaneous emotion. So this fact that joy was commanded indicates that it was more than emotional froth. Praise, thanksgiving, rejoicing, these things were at the core of Israel's faith and religious life. And as part of a covenant faith were matters of choice and will and commitment. So, even now, things are hard you can make a choice you can make a commitment to rejoice in God after all he stays the same regardless of what life is like around us And so we return to the conclusion, which we already read earlier, verse 16. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. For all these feasts they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Throughout these chapters, there's been a focus on what is in our hands. And way back in the first verse of chapter 15, grant a release literally means to release the hand. Then it talks about shutting your hand or opening your hand to give to the needy. Then it talks about not letting a freed slave go away empty-handed. And then it said to, in chapter 16, it talked about giving a free will offering to the Lord from your hand. And finally here it says to not appear before the Lord empty-handed. But really, as we've seen, whatever is in our hands is only there because God put it there. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. Every grace comes from His hand. So, even if and when we do show up in His presence as, as poor empty-handed failures. He fills up our hands to overflowing with His grace. So let's rejoice in Him. Let's pray that that, that overflowing grace would be a defining characteristic of us as God's people. Father, you are so good to us. You have given so much to us in your grace. Now may you fill us up, your spirit, with your love, with your grace and mercy and kindness, so that we can share your grace with those around us. Help us to resemble you and the grace you've shown us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.